Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jody Morrison. Jody is the acting CEO at Waltham, Massachusetts-based Q32Bio. It's a company developing treatments for autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. It has an antibody in development with Horizon Therapeutics, aimed at IL-7 receptor alpha, in phase two for the treatment of atopic dermatitis. It also has wholly owned programs aimed at the complement system of the innate immune system with the intent of making these treatments tissue targeted. Jody came to this position after a series of executive roles and board positions. Her first stint as a CEO at Tokai Pharmaceuticals didn't end well, but she dusted herself off and came back to play a role in back-to-back-to-back successful outcomes at Syntimmune, Carex, and Cadent Therapeutics. In this episode, we talk about how Jody developed the confidence to lead from some of her early career experiences, how she thinks about hiring, and at the end, she provides some advice to young women seeking to grow and advance in the biotech industry. Now for a word from the sponsor of the long run, Occam Global. Occam Global is an international professional services firm focusing on executive recruitment, organizational development, and board construction. The firm's clientele emphasize intensely purposeful and broadly accomplished entrepreneurs and visionary investors in the life sciences. Occam Global augments such extraordinary and committed individuals in building high-performing executive teams and assembling appropriate governance structures. Occam serves such opportune sectors as gene cell therapy, neuroscience, gene editing, the intersection of AI and machine learning, and drug discovery and development. Connect with them at www.occam-global.com slash long run. Now, please join me and Jody Morrison on the long run. Jody Morrison, welcome to the long run. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Jody, I'm really excited to have you on the show today to talk about a few different things that we don't off, I don't often talk about on this show in terms of management philosophy. So we'll get to that and how it applies to biotech. But let's just start from the beginning. Where you're a girl from Michigan, how did you how did your family end up there? My father was a college professor in Michigan. So after he got his PhD, he relocated the family to CMU, Central Michigan University, and he was a health science professor. And so that's where our story began in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. And what did your mom do? My mom was a gifted and talented consultant for the state of Michigan. She started out as a elementary school teacher and then eventually transitioned into a focus on that. Okay, so there's an emphasis on education, I take it, in this household? A significant one, absolutely. Did you always get good grades? Were you a good student? I was a very good student. I didn't apply myself very hard in high school, I will tell you, but I did do very well in school. You said your dad was in health sciences, so did you follow in those footsteps early on, or did you rebel, or (laughs) when did you get interested in health science yourself. Yeah, in high school, I found an interest in biology. I had a great teacher in high school named Miss Jose, who I think was an inspiration for me in both being a female scientist, but also just the curriculum that she provided was something that really resonated with me and spoke to me. But I actually entered college focused on math. That was actually my primary focus was going to be math as I got into Mount Holyoke. Math. And what were you thinking you might do with that? I wasn't quite sure, like most high schoolers, right? It was just something I was very good at, and it translated very nicely for me. So I had lengthy conversations thinking about a career in statistics or a career in applied mathematics. And would I do something in finance? Would I end up focusing in that path? I didn't think so at the time. Certainly plays a huge role in what I do now. So it certainly plays an upside for me these days. Okay, so you went out to Mount Holyoke, you went east to Massachusetts. How did you end up there? 
Yeah, so my mother had grown up in Rhode Island, so I have a lot of family on the East Coast. So we had spent a lot of time in my childhood visiting the East Coast over the years. I had a cousin who had gone to Mount Holyoke, so visited the campus with her when I was probably 16 years old. And I just fell in love with the campus, to be honest. I think that's how we made a lot of our decisions back then. But it just felt comfortable. People and many of the students that I met when I was there would say the same thing. There was a warm oatmeal cookie feeling to the campus and to the community that I found when I went there. And so it just felt like home. Now, it's also a women's college. What was significant about that? What was significant at the time was that the idea that I would go there was surprising to many. The idea that I would not be in a co-ed environment was a surprise because I enjoyed the co-ed environment. And I enjoyed the co-ed sports and being part of a traditional Michigan football community. So it was a very, it was a very big change for me. I found though that it allowed me to really dramatically focus on my studies and on, I think, improving my relationship depth with other women, which has played extremely well in in my life for sure. Now, I think there's some data that's accumulated over time that shows, gosh, there's a lot of women who have long-term success in their careers and in life when they've attended women's colleges. Now, I don't know if you recognize that so much at the time, but <laughs> looking back, what was important about that experience? You and I, the stats really are compelling when we think about it, right? I think 2% of the general population go to women's colleges, and yet 20% of the women in Congress went to women's colleges. 30% of rising females in executive roles by Business Week metrics are from women's colleges. And you look at the first of many categories, right? First Secretary of State, first Speaker of the House, first female candidate for president, first female candidate for VP, all came out of first Fortune 500 CEO who is female, all came out of women's colleges. There's something to those stats that's super compelling. And so I think the experience that I had there, while I didn't appreciate the potential upside of it to myself from a career in business, certainly, and in biotech, there is something about the environment that nurtures you in a way that I think other other schools don't do the same. So I think it played a huge role in my comfort in a boardroom, my comfort in leadership, my comfort speaking my mind on topics, sometimes that are above my level. I'll still give my opinion, and that certainly early on in my career could be more challenging and later in my career became a huge benefit. Yeah, it sounds like a real confidence builder. So what did you actually study there? Yeah, so I was a neuroscience and behavior major, and I was a religion minor. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so what were the topics that really piqued your interest in those years? I ended up in neuroscience by chance. I thought I was going to be a mathematics major and a bio undergrad, a bio minor. And my sophomore year, based on just basically what I could fit into my schedule at a given moment. I took a neuroscience intro class, like a neuro 101, and I fell in love with the integrated science of it, right? It was psychology, it was chemistry, it was biology all put together. And there was a huge amount of unknown science. There isn't everything, but the brain still remains in a lot of ways a mystery to us. And so it it was the perfect mathematical equation nobody had solved in some ways for me. And that's what I loved about the class. And it was one of the hardest classes that Mount Holyoke offered. I think we had exams weekly (laughs) for the whole semester, which was unheard of at the time, weekly exams. And it just really pushed me in a way no other class had. And I love that. I love that sort of forced function of learning and being tested and knowing where you are at a given moment. And that really just compelled me to really focus there. Yeah, it was a frontier then, and in many ways, it's still a frontier today. So how did you end up going to work in biotech? Yeah, so my, I think it was my junior year, I went home for a weekend with another woman who went to Mount Holyoke with me, Whitney Frazier. Her father was one of the early biotech CEOs at a company called Diacrin, which was one the kind of the forefront of xenotransplantation back in the early waves of the 90s. And went home for a weekend and was in her kitchen with her family preparing dinner. And her mother said, hey, you're a neuro undergrad. Tom's running a neuroscience company. They were doing Parkinson's work at the time and a number of other indications. And they had just dosed their first Parkinson's patient. And she said, he's been talking about it nonstop. And I'm tired of hearing of it. So if you'd love to talk to him, like I'd love to put you in the other room and let him talk to you about it. And so I sat down with Tom and heard 
this unbelievable story of the science that they had brought forward and they were taking pig neurons into human heads and that they had done remarkable work in their first patient already of seeing a patient who had been wheelchair bound get up and walk down the hallway for the first time in in a very long period of time. And I was so compelled by the concept that integrative science could translate in that way that I just was all in in the conversation. And by the end of that weekend, he was coordinating an internship for me at Diacrine that summer. So the summer between my junior and senior year, and then subsequent to graduation, I joined the, the company originally in the labs. So there's a combination here of basic science exploration, but you can see the tangible payoff, like how this benefits the person. And that captivated you. It absolutely did. And I was definitely at that point, I had transitioned to neuro, left math behind, and was really thinking I would go to med school. That was a track I was on. And I was coming back senior year to be focused on med school applications. And over that summer, this idea that you could translate these product candidates, right, into something that could help tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of patients, millions of patients in certain indications. The idea that you could be part of something that big was so attractive to me compared to the one-on-one patient care that I had been thinking was my path that it redirected me towards the early days of biotech. This is like mid-90s biotech. And it was just such an exciting frontier that really changed my course. Okay. So you decide that you're going to work in this industry. It is still something of a nascent industry. Biogen and Genzyme were around that were well-known in the Massachusetts cluster. But I, you ended up going to this company called Diax fairly early on. What did you do there? Yes, yeah, so I joined as the, I guess it was senior manager of clinical operations and eventually rose just a director slash senior director level of clinical and med affairs. So what were the key learnings from this five-year stint you had there? They were immense. I think I cut my teeth on interacting with senior managers for the first time. I had my hands on a program at the time which had been open for a year. This was what eventually became Calvator, which reached the market, but it was an HAE program that they had started for hereditary angioedema. And it was a population that had been abandoned, really, by the pharma industry at the time. Everybody had walked away from the trials that they were running. And Diax had entered into a trial that had been open for a year, hadn't dosed a single patient, and they were contemplating whether to shut it down when I got there. And I had the opportunity to be a big part of driving that forward and figuring out the the challenges that it faced and why we weren't recruiting. And we rapidly converted that program into an active clinical program, started dosing patients, and really started the path towards what eventually became the launch of Calvator. Now, for people who may not remember, Diax was well known for its phage display technology for antibody discovery. And it had a lot of relationships with a lot of companies that would use this platform for their own work. But Diax had that challenge of using its platform to develop its own products. And this was one of them. And so you were part of that clinical group that had to figure out how to translate that first, that one asset that is what it would take for this to become a successful, profitable company someday. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so the opportunity to do that, to be on the forefront of that was just a really exciting thing for a young kid in my 20s at the time. To have that kind of an opportunity doesn't come along every day. And so we had these great relationships, a key relationship on what was the DX88 program that became Calvator was with Genzyme. So we had a joint venture with Genzyme on the program. And actually, the very first company that Tom Frazier ran also had a joint venture with Genzyme. So I overlapped with a lot of the same people across those programs that are still dear friends and folks that I work with today. But we had a key relationship there. And that kind of combination of Diax and Genzyme that existed for a long time, it eventually broke down. And it was Diax that took Calvator forward to the market on its own, but was a really big part of my first sort of foray into larger or mid-sized biotech. How many employees were at Diax in, in that those years? So when I joined, we were over 100. There was a large-scale cutback at one point that brought us to closer to 50. I would say by the time I left, we were probably edging up around 80. And then it grew, obviously, as they moved. We had launched the Phase 3 and gotten that program underway at the time that I moved to Tokai. But I think they grew quite extensively subsequent to that, scaling up for the launch of Calvator at the end of the Phase 3s. 
Okay, so it's not exactly a startup, maybe a mid-sized company trying to transition from development stage to a commercial company. Looking back, you developed a lot of relationships. You learned a lot. Why was Diax su- such an important experience for you? Yeah, I think one of the key, there were so many lessons learned there, but I think one of the keys, and I mentioned it before, was really that exposure to senior leadership for the first time. Being in the room with Henry Blair, being in the room with all the C-suite members, having a direct line of work directly for the chief medical officer. I had a seat at the table frequently, and that's not something you typically get that early in your career. At least back then, it was more uncommon. I think now, the way we structure things, we try to give that exposure more if we're doing it right. But back then, it was harder to come by. And so it really gave me a bird's eye view into the moving parts of decision making in the company. Okay. So eventually, you move on. You got ambitions to move up into senior management. How did you end up going to Tokai Pharmaceuticals? I felt like I had done a lot of the things I wanted to do. We had built an endpoint from nothing, right? We built our own phase three endpoint. We got that through the agency in our discussions. We got the phase three underway. And, you know, we had done a lot of work with the patient community. And I felt really good about the work I had done there. And the opportunity for Tokai came around actually through the chief scientific officer who had been both at Diacrin, that first company with Tom Frazier, and at Diax when I first got there, Scott Chapel. So he was building under Apple Tree Ventures at the time this company called Tokai. And I had the opportunity to step in there as the head of clinical and take that key role within the organization and what was, I was the first full-time employee that they brought in. So it was just a really unique opportunity to really try my hat at startup. And I was at a unique point in my personal life. I'd had both my kids. My husband had finished business school and was gainfully employed. And it was an opportunity for me to jump in with low risk to our family situation. And it just felt like the right time. And so I jumped in there And we were off to the races with what at the time, ironically, was a women's health company. It eventually became a men's health company with a prostate cancer lead, but that's a different story. Huh. That's the part that I think most people would remember about Tokai was the prostate cancer program. Can you talk a little bit about what you were trying to do there? The program itself started out as what I would say would would have been a competitor to the early days of Abiraterone and what became Zytiga and Extandi. So the Cougar Biotech and Medivation assets that are now Zytiga and Extandi in the market. And so we had an asset that sort of combined the mechanisms of those two drugs, as the idea was you could get both of the mechanisms with what we had at, at Tokai and then some. Along the way, those drugs moved rapidly, though, and they finished their phase threes. They started marching towards commercialization, and it became challenging, right, to develop drugs. You couldn't use placebo anymore. The standard of care was changing, and it was challenging. And so we identified in our data sets that we had a drug that could be used in a splice variant population called ARV7. We had indications that would be a unique population where the other drugs wouldn't work. And so we pivoted the program and focused on that in our phase three And we had to, one of the challenges with that program is we had to build a companion diagnostic alongside our drug because there was no diagnostic for ARV7, just a a program that had been done on Hopkins internally. And so we had to commercialize or aim to commercialize a companion diagnostic along with the asset. And so we moved in that direction with the program as we moved into phase three, launched our IPO on the basis of that phase three. But unfortunately, in the end, the companion diagnostic development program Likely, we did some preliminary work on what we think happened there, but I think that ultimately we were probably fine-tuning at a level where we were getting patients over the cliff at the point that we were identifying ARV7. So much ARV7 was ongoing that they weren't able to reach the endpoints that had been designed in the trial consistently. And therefore, the DSMB decided that ethically we needed to shut down the trial. In parallel with that, chemo chemo had been identified to be successful in ARV7 patients. And so ultimately, from an ethical standpoint, you had this combination of we're having trouble getting patients all the way to the endpoint because they're so sick and data emerging suggesting that chemotherapy was going to work in those patients. And so we halted the program and effectively ended the company on the basis of that put it through a reverse yeah, measure. There was no real path forward from the way you describe it. It just sounds like it went into a dead end. It ultimately did. It, it was a heartbreaker, but you have to make those hard decisions and you look at the data. And you know, I still remember sitting in my office when the DSMB had their meeting and, and realizing the impact 
on the organization and where we were going to go with it. So this was the culmination of a lot of work. You were there 10 years, worked your way up from VP to COO to CEO, and you were the CEO when that hard decision had to be made to terminate the program and wind down the company. Yeah, I was the CEO at the time of the high, right, when we got the IPO done and had a fantastic debut on NASDAQ, rang the bell, sat in Times Square with my team, and then was also running the company when we hit the challenge that ultimately ended the company. Now, some people hear this story, they might think, gosh, that that must have been devastating. How did you bounce back? Yeah, it was. There's no other way to put it. And I have, as a board member now, seen companies go through their ups and downs. And I always say to the CEOs when they're facing these moments that they, these are brutal moments, but you will look back and recognize that you learn more in those situations, in the down situations, than you ever do on the high ones. And so you won't see it now, but you will see it later. And the decisions you make here will be ones that you think about and learn from and reference throughout your career. So it was devastating. There is no doubt having to lay off a company is not something I ever want to have to do again, but it is part of our industry, right? And so the decisions that we make along the way and the way we behave in those moments and the compassion we show for our employees in those moments, that's what carries me forward as I think about the experience now. Did you cry a little? I did. I've publicly said, I think there's very few times I'm not a terribly emotional person, although maybe on the mountain with you, Luke, perhaps more. But in general, in business, I am not. But I did. I, got, I had to get up in front of the company within that meeting happened on a Monday. And on Tuesday, we, hold a, we held a company meeting. We announced it publicly. And we had a company meeting where we were saying we will be coming back to you in the next 12 hours with the layoff plans. So yeah, I did. But in that moment, Obviously, you're talking to your board, you're thinking about how to navigate this situation and do right by the employees, by the investigators, the patients, the investors, all these people. You mentioned conducting yourself with dignity, I think, or holding your head high was important. How did you navigate that? I think I thought a lot about if I were an employee starting there, how would I want to see the CEO reacting to this? And so that played a role in my thinking. I think on behalf of the patients and our investigators, the view was we needed to be transparent and communicative as quickly as possible with them. We needed to see if there was a way to insulate the ARV7 assay for the good of patients, right? Could we make sure that moved forward because it was an important biomarker of disease that could be part of the treatment paradigm and is today part of the treatment paradigm? And I think on investors, ultimately, we made the decision that we would rapidly announced this. We, we felt like we owed that to the market. And they give you, there's a grace period when you get information like this, but we went out quickly, decisively, directly about the decisions we were making. We gave ourselves a short amount of time to look for a path through it. Ultimately, we didn't find one. And so we had to rapidly make the decision to then move it into a reverse merger and, and treat it as a shell. So you didn't try to spin this. You didn't try to data dredge out of some subset or anything like that. You came clean. Oh, we came clean right away. We had to. In my view, there was no other alternative, but we absolutely tried to data mine. We had lots of data mining exercises that occurred in the weeks after to see if there was a way to rescue this. But ultimately, in the competitive landscape backdrop that existed at that time and in the requirement to go back to the drawing board and build a different assay and rerun the programs, there wasn't a tolerance to do so by the investors of the company. Yeah. Yeah, those other drugs, abiraterone and salutamide, they went on to blockbuster status and you would have been behind and yeah. Okay, so now you had gotten the CEO job pretty early in your 30s and this whole thing went down. You're still pretty young. Did you think that this would be your one and only shot to run a company? I've been asked that question a lot. And no, maybe this is that confidence that comes out of the Mount Holyoke background. I don't know. But I didn't because I think I knew I was learning a lot. I had gained so much experience, both from taking the company public to running it for a number of years and to shutting it down, that immediately the discussions I was having with peers and friends who were CEOs, who were board members, who were venture capitalists in the area, was that 
that experience, as heart-wrenching as it was, provided the backdrop for bigger successes in the future. And so there was, I immediately had a lot of people calling me about what I wanted to do next. I wasn't sure, to be honest, though, that I wanted to do another CEO role because it was devastating. It's like, why would I want to do that again? And I certainly didn't think I wanted to be a public CEO because the end of a company in a public format has a very unique devastation to it and an uncontrolled impact that, because you don't know all your investors, right? When you're a private company with a small board with a limited group of people and you go into a boardroom and you have the conversation with those core investors and you shut it down, it's very different than when mom and dad and the people that live in your town and all these people are buying stock in your company and people you don't know and can't control and have never met. That's a very different level of chaos, I guess, that that I didn't think I wanted to go through again. They lost their money. They lost all of their money and they're looking at you (laughs) as the person responsible for this. Yeah. And I haven't publicly talked about this often, but I received death threats at the company as a result of it from one investor. And I had young kids who I had to show pictures of somebody to, right? I had to go to the town that I lived in and show it to the police. I didn't think I wanted to go through that again. That was a tough one. That's really unfortunate. Okay. So how did you start over, so to speak? Yeah. So I think what ended up happening is I got these opportunities that presented themselves in a series where I could be a smoke jumper and really jump into, because I wasn't sure I wanted to go back long term. So it gave me a chance to jump into companies that the the first one was as COO, a company called Centimune, where I jumped in to help Jean-Paul Krauss, who had just joined as the CEO, kind of now, Jody, can you just pause for a second and define that? How do you, what do you mean by smoke jumper? What's that role involve? Yeah, I think it's ultimately when there's a gap, right? There's a problem or a need within an organization and they need somebody to jump in quickly and solve the problem, right? Whether it's we need to scale up the team, we don't have the right people, somebody's departed the company and there's a need to stabilize the existing people and not lose employees, or there's you have to decide if the company can move forward it or not, right? You need somebody to get inside to look at the bones of it and decide if there's a healthy asset there or not. And so the series of companies I jumped into were all very similar in that capacity. So you were consulting like a free agent. You had a lot of contacts with board members who would come to you and say, hey, I've got a portfolio company here that something has gone a little bit awry and we need a fresh set of eyes to come in here and try to fix things or set them back. And this is fairly common. Companies have gaps all the time, right? And so having somebody who's had the experience I have was of value as first-time CEOs were jumping into companies and needed to scale up and build, but were coming out of large pharma and didn't know how to do that in a small format. So that was one example. In another, there was a CEO that transitioned in the wake of a deal being brought to the table for the company to do what became a large-scale merger of equals, and they needed somebody to step in on that one, down to Q32, where I am today, which, you know, in between, I took another long-term role, but I jumped in here as a sort of seconded in here as the CEO, subsequent to a transition of CEO to, to support the team and stabilize things here. So it's become a little bit of a common thread now through the last seven, eight years of my career. Occam is a global executive search firm focused on entrepreneurs and venture capital investors. Occam Global not only recruits CEOs and other C-suite leaders, but also plays a strategic and tactical role in building out optimal boards and advising on governance issues. Whether it be an executive chairman to provide leadership guidance for a first-time CEO, or functional experts in R&D, business development, finance, or operations, Occam's broad-based network in life sciences provides a maximal number of potent options to their clients. Occam's board clients can be companies at the earliest stage, those preparing for a public offering, or public companies seeking to enhance an established board. Connect with them at www.occam-global.com slash long run. Now, this role of the smoke jumper, clearly there's a lot of companies that have this kind of need. Once they get through the embryonic stage and it's all blue sky, a few years in, something, <laughs> something's missing and, and they need some help. 
how do you think this matched up with uh, your skills or why do you think this role suited you? Yeah. So I think experience obviously is a piece of it, right? When you, it's hard to know how to fix something. And this goes back to when these challenging moments happen, your skill set actually builds and changes and morphs. And you think, boy, I might do that differently next time. Or boy, I nailed it this time. I'll do that again. Whatever it is, you're amassing these skills in the experience that you have. But I think at the heart of all of them, and I think at the heart of strong leadership, is the ability to command teams, to build community, to build teamwork, to build communication across executive committees, senior leadership committees, boards, right? I think that's the common thread. And I think the skill set that probably of all the skill sets I have that get used the most, right, is this particular skill, which is the ability to stabilize teams and stabilize communications across teams, up to the board, down to the SLT, and across the organization. How do you think about hiring people? Because often when you parachute into one of these situations, you've got to stabilize the existing group of people, as you say, but you may also need to bring in some new people. So what are you looking for in, in people? I always start with the people we have, right? Because they're there for a reason. They have amassed experience and expertise. And so I spend time, I think, right out of the gate getting to know those people. So I always take my time before I make any decisions about hires into these situations. But ultimately, you look for the gaps, right? You look for the gaps and you, from a skill standpoint, first and foremost. But then a big part of the way I hire people, whether it's in one of these roles when I'm in an acting capacity or whether it's a long-term role that I'm in, is I get to the heart of, it's a little bit of personality and it's a little bit of communication style, team focus, community building focus. I'm always looking for good team players and people who have high EQ because ultimately you can find all the skills, but bad EQ and the inability to integrate properly in communication across a team is to me the biggest killer we run into in these companies is a breakdown in that communication, which I think often can be traced back to problems with EQ. Yeah. You said earlier that you're not a super emotional person. Do you see yourself as an even keeled, like a, a ballast <laughs> for a rocking ship? Yeah, I think so. I can get worked up. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I can get worked up. But I think that generally, yeah, I try to be very even keel. I try to control the way I react in situations. And I try to be very thoughtful about the impact of my words in these roles. Because people are looking at you in leadership, right? They're looking at your reaction to the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think these moments when we're building teams, I look for that in the people I'm bringing in. And I train for it if it's not already been trained for. And this is often a source of credibility to certainly the external audiences. If you are able to communicate on an even keel about the good and the bad, that does accrue to one's reputation as opposed to other ways of communicating, which can be excessively hype-driven or hiding when something bad happens or spinning. Those are great ways to destroy one's credibility. I completely agree. I completely agree. And when I look back, going back to the Tokai experience, I'm really proud of the way we handled it. It was a horrible thing to go through, but we did right to the best of our ability at the end to every one of the parties we were serving the employees, the patients, the investors, and the community at large of KOLs. So you dusted yourself off, you had this failure, and then you parachuted into a few different companies. Sintimune ended up being acquired by Alexion. Carex, you were there for a while, it merged with Akebia. Both of these transactions were really po positive for the shareholders and everyone involved. You, you started building back or adding to a growing track record. Then he went to Cadent. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? What were you trying to do there? 
Cadent was a neuro-focused company, so the first neuro I had gotten back to since the days of Diax. And the idea, we had two different sides of the house. We were focused on allosteric modulation, both positive and negative, for a partnered program that was with Novartis for for excuse me for depression, so a competitor to esketamine. And then we were developing the schizophrenia asset internally. And then the other side of the house was focused on movement disorders, ataxia was a key indication we were focused on there. So two sides of the house. And were you thinking that this was another one of these smoke jumper situations or that might be a longer term thing that you would run? Actually, I jumped into that one long term and it was a very compelling story for me because I had a personal vested interest in both sides of the work that we were doing. So on the movement disorder side, I have a dear friend who suffered from an anoxic brain injury that has ataxia, as well as essential tremor, which was another indication we were focused on there. And then I had a grandmother who had schizophrenia. And so the idea of being able to work on these indications where I had seen the impact was really compelling. And so when um, a couple of the investors first approached me, it was a story that I found so compelling, I was prepared to jump in with both feet and did that. Yeah. And how far along was it in development with those programs? The essential tremor study had been completed and we were gearing up for spinal cerebellar ataxia program that we were going to launch into phase two. So we were in the process of interrogating the data on ET, raising capital and preparing to go forward on the SCA population. On the schizophrenia asset, we were so that The depression asset had been partnered to Novartis, and we were in the process of gearing up towards an IND for for the asset for schizophrenia. So we had a DC, and we were moving that forward when I joined. Okay, so you had a clinical program and then another that was moving in that direction. So this was a company at a stage of development that was playing toward your strength in clinical development strategy. And, And of course, there's a bunch of scientists there that you would lean on for you know, that that domain expertise. I can go deep on the science once I'm in and learn all of that, but I always really rely on the core scientists that are around the table to provide that depth. And I think to your point, one of the things that I've learned in all the various companies I've been associated with is my background running clinical research. It, that's my comfort zone, right? So I've run early stage, I've run commercial stage, but I'm a clinical person at heart. And so that translational point from the non-clinical to the early clinical or early clinical to mid to late clinical, that's where I play best. And so I've focused a lot of my efforts on companies when I do the full-time roles that are, in fact, in that kind of sector. Now, this is an important point because no one knows everything. (laughs) Biotech's a team sport, as is often said. It's important to know what you're really good at, what your wheelhouse is, and where you work together well with others who are experts in their areas. But how do you establish your credibility with the scientists and your relationship to them? Because sometimes people think, oh, biotech companies should always be led by scientists. I don't happen to subscribe to that idea, but I think there are good CEOs from a variety of different backgrounds. But how do you think about entering one of these situations and forming that trusting set of relationships on a management team that you got to have? I try to be really honest about what I know and don't know, and I'm not afraid to say the things I don't know. And I think when I mentor and spend time with first-time CEOs, they sometimes feel insecure about that, about acknowledging what they do know or don't know or what they're good at or not good at. And again, I probably go back to the Mount Holyoke experience here. I'm just a very transparent person, and I'm really direct about that. I know enough to be dangerous. I can play scientist. I can play MD if I have to. If I have to give a clinical story, I can fill in for a CMO. But I don't have the depth and the experience that they do. And I I make sure they understand that I know that. I want them to train me so I'm good enough to be able to pitch those things. But I will rely on them and expect them to be the core domain experts in that area. And that's okay. And it's, and the flip of that is I don't expect them to understand all the things I'm doing or what the CFO is doing. And there has to be that sort of reciprocal respect for the ability to generally understand it, but recognize there's a layer underneath it that's not your expertise and that you have to build a team where you rely on the people around you to have that depth in the appropriate areas. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, Cadent, you, you said you plan to be there a for the long term, 
but it actually wasn't too long-term of a stint. It was acquired by Novartis after a couple of years. It was. It was. So we got through the IND for the schizophrenia asset and ran our first study there, and the data was compelling, and we began negotiations and discussions with Novartis over a period of time from the very beginning of the IND all the way through the clinical data, and then transacted that at the end of 20, closed that out in 21. And it's in great hands. We're really pleased with where it landed. I do think an asset for schizophrenia probably belongs in big pharma. I think they will be able to not have to make the puts and takes that small companies have to make in those development programs. I think it's a very important asset, and I'm really looking forward to following and continuing to follow the development as they move it forward. And as you were negotiating this agreement, this acquisition by Novartis, something very personal happened in your life. You're diagnosed with breast cancer. Can you tell that story? Like, what happened? This is in the heart of 2020, right? So a terrible year for a lot of reasons. And I got an extra check in the column on that one. But I, in November of 2020, in the middle of negotiations with Novartis on a routine, although delayed because of COVID mammogram, I was identified as having early stage breast cancer. Certainly a bit of a shock and a very difficult time in the world to be diagnosed with something serious. And somebody referred to me once as a COVID-era cancer survivor, and I thought that's such a weird way to put it, but it was a very unique experience to go through treatments where, you know, your your spouse can't go to the doctor with you. They can't go into the hospital with you when you're going in for major surgery. So yeah, it was a pretty tough experience and a tough time to go through, to go through cancer diagnosis yeah. and treatment. Yeah. It's always scary, but this sounds especially scary and lonely in yeah. some ways. I think the lonely piece of it is the piece that I think gets ascribed to those of us that went through it during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. What did what kind of treatment did you have to get? I was fortunate in a lot of ways because I was able to go through surgical. So I went through a mastectomy in 2020 in the November timeframe, very rapidly after diagnosis elected to go that route. And so had that done in November and based on pathology follow-up, lots of discussion have been in more of a, a watchful waiting state at this point. So just keeping an eye on things on a very regular basis, having scans, but not at the moment having to go under undergo any additional treatments you didn't have to get chemotherapy or um, anything else? Like no chemo, no radiation. Or? Yeah, no no chemo, no radiation. And discussions about other things we could do will continue probably for the rest of my life on a preventative basis of recurrence. But at this point, I uh, have elected to, to focus on the surgical side of the house. More surgeries to be done at some point, but, but that's been my path. But you got a clean bill of health after this traumatic episode. Now, you mentioned COVID. Now, I guess we should rewind a little bit because early on in the pandemic, you rolled up your sleeves, took it upon yourself to create what amounted to a network on Zoom of your fellow CEOs. What happened there? In the early March 2020, as it was all starting, I we were one of the early companies. So Cadent was one of the early companies that went out. We had gone to Cowan. We had overlapped with some of the Biogen executives. And I think we all remember the Biogen story around that time. So we called Cadent out, I think, March 3rd, March 4th. And basically, we're not returning to the office until we get more visibility into this. We had returned to the office subsequent to the Cowan meeting. And we didn't know how it was transmitted, right? So we were concerned we could have exposed people. And so the very first week of March, we're out, we're watching other companies making these decisions, and we're all getting a lot of traffic in emails from board members about what other companies were doing and how they were approaching it. And so two of the folks I was hearing from a lot were both at Atlas Venture. So Peter Barrett and Dave Grizel were both sending me updates on what the companies were doing there. And so to simplify it, I said, listen, do you want me to just coordinate all the Atlas CEOs together, and we'll talk about what we're all doing in this context. And so that was, they immediately gave me the names. So it started as just a sort of Atlas group of CEOs that first week. And so by Monday, the following week, we had our first call, picked the time 730 simply because it didn't conflict with other meetings we had on our schedules. And that was the start of it. By the second week, we probably were over 50. By the third week, over 100 CEOs, well beyond the community of Atlas, friends of friends and communities. And we've continued to grow that way to about 350 people right now, including CEO designees from senior leadership roles that, that join us for that. And it's continued now. 
all this time, which is quite remarkable. So a lot of these CEOs were pouring into these meetings and talking about what? Asking each other, their peers, things like, how are you handling the, your experiments, your clinical trials? Are you putting things on hold? How can you do distributed trials? <laughs> so we had multiple subcommittees that spun up and spun down over time. We'd sunset them once it was no longer an issue. But we had subcommittees in the early days dealing with lab workers that were still in the lab. How do we keep them safe? How do we keep them distant? What color systems are you using? Badge systems that would identify if you are within six feet from somebody. All of those types of things were being shared. Recommendations there. How to get access to tests for your employees, what testing schedule to use. We pulled up a testing unit through the forum that was available in Cambridge for a long, long portion of the early days before we could really get any other access. So that was one example. We had a clinical trial group that was actually run by some CMO appointees that were in there, one of which I work with at Q32 today. That's actually how I got to know Jason Campagna. We spun up groups like that. We had preclinical groups dealing with the shutdowns that were happening at preclinical sites in China and how we were getting animals studies done, GMP components, thinking about how we were getting manufacturing completed in that environment. So it was a culmination of what are the hot topics we're worried about today and how do we collectively figure out the right path forward. And it was non-competitive. And I think that was one of the really cool things. We had direct competitive companies in there, but it wasn't about the work. It was about how we were doing the work, how we would survive as an industry, how we would keep our employees safe, how we would drive drugs forward for patients who needed it despite the situation situation we were facing. And in some cases, should we be driving those assets forward in certain populations and bringing them into hospitals where they might not be safe? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like there was a lot of value in these calls. I've spoken with people who were on them and felt a lot of gratitude for, for to, to you for organizing that. Oh, I, for me, it was a pleasure to do. I feel like I've had such a great career in this lovely industry we work in. And it was a great way to give back, right, to the community and to help all of us figure out how to get through it. None of us knew what we were doing, right, in those early months. No, none of us had faced a situation like this. So we were all, whether you were a multi-time CEO, whether you were a first-time CEO, whether you were running a company of 500 or running a company of two, none of us knew how to weather that storm how to raise capital in that environment, how to keep employees safe in a pandemic, in a global pandemic, and how to give people hope and information. And so it really was a true pleasure to pull it together. And it's continued. And I always find moments of thinking, is there really a home for this thing anymore? And then things like the SVB financial crisis happen and the CEO forum becomes another resource for that. So I think that it will continue, I think, in some format, whether it's its current format of monthly meetings and a WhatsApp channel or whether it just becomes a WhatsApp channel someday will be dictated by the value we're giving back to the industry. And the folks that are chairing these subcommittees play a huge role in, in driving content and working with me on it. So I definitely don't do it alone. It speaks to the value of networks, coming back to that again, and putting your heads together and figuring out something together. <laughs> That's too much for one person to just do on their own. You mentioned giving back. Now, again, you mentioned earlier, you had sold Cadent Therapeutics, another success, another notch on your track record. After that, you, you went to Atlas. Atlas was one of the investors in Cadent, and they brought you in as a venture partner. And that's one of those roles where successful entrepreneurs are, can come in and explore a while some of the projects they've got going and maybe find something to run with. Is that what you were thinking that you might do next? At the time, it was a little less specific than that. I think that the Atlas folks, because I had a couple of them on the board with me, had known what I had gone through with my cancer diagnosis and knew that I was not sure that I wanted to go back and do another CEO role. So they understood that while venture partner roles typically lead in this direction, and in fact have, because I'm now sitting in a seconded position as CEO at Q32, that wasn't necessarily the intent. So I was there to help the portfolio, work with different CEOs, work with the partners as they were thinking about different companies they were building and have that option should it become available or should it be something that became compelling. But I was having a lot of fun sitting on boards and helping evaluate early stage companies that they were thinking of investment with. And even throttle down a little bit, take some of that burden off your shoulders after having gone through this personal challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think, any time, and I've talked to many people that have had cancer diagnoses early or later stage, and it does 
give you pause, right? And I had just had an exit with Caden. So it was also a unique position to say, okay, I don't need to jump back in right now. I can reevaluate my life. The reality is I love to work and I love this industry and I love what we do. And what we do for patients is just so amazing. And we're so fortunate, I think, to have the opportunity to do what we do that it was really hard, I think, for me to imagine not jumping back in, but I had the Ribon board chair role. I had other board seats that I had, and I had the CEO forum that I was still leading. So I had a pretty full and rich portfolio of things I was working on, but in my heart, I'm an operator. And and so that's, I think, how I've landed where I am now with Q32. Yeah, you still sounded pretty busy at this time, but sometime f- fall of 2021 is when I called you and said, hey, would you like to come on the Everest Base Camp trek for cancer research? And you decided to do that. Why? Oh, gosh, that was such a remarkable time. So it was almost exactly the year anniversary from my diagnosis when you reached out and was still going through PT and recovery post my surgery. And so when you reached out, it just felt, is this a challenge I can take on? So I remember having conversations with a lot of because I wasn't public about it at the time either, or very public about it, right? So some people close to me knew what I had gone through, but very few, because I didn't see anybody because it was COVID, right? So it was easy to hide a diagnosis of cancer and being out for a period of time in those days and sit on a green screen. So I really thought about it long and hard. And I think ultimately where I landed was there were two really compelling reasons for me to do it. The first was three, really, right? First was to raise money for such a unique opportunity, right? To drive for cancer research at Fred Hutch, like, how could I not want to do that? What a great thing to be contributing to, especially as a cancer survivor. I think, two, I wanted to prove to myself I could still do things like that. I had done a high-altitude hike with my husband a few years prior. And when you go through something like cancer treatment and you're thinking about your future, you're wondering, what's ahead for me? Can I do the things I used to do? Is it going to be harder for me? And then I think the third was I wanted to, I saw it as an opportunity to inspire people going through cancer treatments, people who had been through cancer treatments to do these types of things, that there's this path ahead of you. I described in what I put out when I was raising funds that climbing a mountain is like the perfect analogy, I think, of having cancer, right? Because you, it's so scary and there's this huge hill you have to climb and you don't know what it's going to look like until you're there, right? And so to be able to do that and inspire other people that were facing diagnoses. And one of my very close friends, my very first committed donor, actually, was diagnosed weeks later. And so I dedicated a lot of my hike to her, carried a picture of her and took pictures of her at each of the stops we went went through. You may have seen me taking pictures with a large picture I took with me. And that served as an inspiration for her to get through some of her treatments. So those things matter, right, for people. So it was a great opportunity to do that. Absolutely. And for those who are not familiar, this hike to Everest Base Camp it starts at about 9,000 or so feet of elevation and gradually works its way up to Everest Base Camp at 17,500 feet, where the oxygen density in the air is about half that of sea level. So it's not technical climbing, but off the mountain or traversing on through the Kumbu Icefall or anything like that. But it is a good challenge physically. And while well, you're exposed to the Himalayan mountain range, one of the great mountain ranges in the world, and you're part of a team of 17 people, it turned out, and a lot of great relationships were formed there. Yeah, there's some of my really close friends came out of that. And we continue to get together now. I think there's something to be said for the the sort of experience of going through something like that really defines relationships and catapults them forward in a pretty unique way. And I think the Timmerman work that you've done, the Timmerman climb work that you've done, Luke, has really built these very unique relationships within our industry. And I'm really fortunate and so thankful to you to have been a part of it because it really is something I'm super proud of and will carry with me throughout the rest of my career for sure. I appreciate that. I'm really privileged to be in a position to to lead these kind of expeditions over and over. Okay, last thing I want to ask you, Jody. So you came back from Nepal <laughs> with that little bit of that afterglow, right? Hey, I just I did this thing, hike to Everest Base Camp, and you're ready for your next full-time operating role, which became Q32 Bio. For those not familiar, can you say a little bit about what this company does and what attracted you? 
It's a really unique platform that is at the heart of the company, developing highly differentiated approaches to the complement system. So it's tissue-directed complement therapeutics. We're actually honing directly to the tissue and addressing the complement challenges there as opposed to the systemic approaches that have historically been used. So that's been the heart of it. And then we have a partnered program with Horizon for an IL-7 T-slip asset that's being taken through a couple indications, including atopic derm. So both clinical stage programs and then a platform behind it. Okay. Okay. And what sort of results do you have or have you published any? Yeah, early days, not all published at this point. We have data on from phase one studies, so volunteer studies to date that are supporting sort of the proximal proof of mechanism and the safety of these assets. And we're moving through the efficacy designs now. But the idea really on the complement side is, right, there's a lot of unmet needs that exist from the approaches that have been taken. And we think we can drive higher efficacy, lower drug requirements, less frequency of treatment, and then better safety profiles for patients, which actually open up new indications and long-term use patterns for patients long-term. This is a good example about how innovation evolves. So we've had systemic complement blockade for a while, and that has been useful, helpful for certain patients. But now people are looking at ways to raise the bar by not blocking in a systemic way, being more targeted toward the tissues, as you say. All right, we'll have to stay tuned on your future readouts. But the last thing I wanted to ask you, Jody, is I think there there may be some women listening to this show and gathering some inspiration of their own, maybe they're earlier in their careers. Do you have any advice to women coming up in biotech who aspire to C-level positions or serving on boards? Absolutely. I have so much I would want to say to this topic. I think I would say have faith, right? I think we are making progress. I've been part of sort of the women's initiatives within the biotech sector over the last decade. I've been really focused on this and was part of the gender diversity initiative at MassBio that kicked off back in like 2015. And the numbers then versus the numbers today have dramatically changed. We have a long way to go, but we're sitting at an executive level approaching mid 35% these days, right? 30, 35% in that range. Boards are up from single digit to over 18% right now for women on boards. And so we are making progress slow, but it is notable progress. And I think I would encourage women who are coming through to recognize that they have a unique opportunity to be part of driving those numbers even higher and that there are wonderful networks of women that have formed around this topic. You've got West, you've got New Wise, you've got the Sisterhood, you have Women in Bio and many others that are forming these networks that I think will continue to catapult and carry women into leadership roles, board roles as we move forward. And as an industry, we can't afford not to right? We have to. We can't source our companies and build our companies if we aren't tapping into 50% of the population. And I think largely people are recognizing that now. And I'd also add that I think COVID has opened up a unique door to the ability to balance and manage through some of the challenges women have faced, in particular when they have families and balancing that. And so with the hybrid work schedules and the ability to utilize Zoom, I think that we're entering a new phase where those issues and challenges that uniquely, at least majority, affect women more than men, I think will be largely overcome. So I have a lot of hope and I have a lot of faith that we are moving in a very positive direction in our industry. So there's a good news story here on the macro level. Progress is occurring and the new way of working with hybrid or remote may mitigate some of those classical barriers that make it extra hard for women to advance. But now if you have a young woman coming in, for, uh, like on a micro level, like a, a young woman that's getting starting out comes to you for advice, are there some standard things that you tend to say? I think I always say that you have, I'm, I'm a really transparent person. I think you have to be transparent in the way you approach situations and recognize that you can control your own destiny and you have to have the right conversations. Is that always true? Not necessarily, but I believe that if we push that ceiling, right, and we are upfront about pushing on the ceiling, then we will have the opportunity to shatter it. And I think that you have to be thoughtful and purposeful in that and be transparent about your desire to do so. 
have confidence. Comes back to that early on. You got that that confidence was instilled. And, and I think um, that circling back to the women's college thing, I think that is probably the key ingredient, right? That has provided this baseline of confidence in women coming out of those schools that has defined these many first positions that women from women's colleges have been in. And so I feel like it's when I'm talking to women who didn't have that opportunity, I try to do what I can to instill some of that right in those conversations. So in some ways, that's the focus of those discussions for me is helping people build that confidence and belief in themselves and their ability to push on that glass ceiling. Yeah, because nobody knows everything to <laughs> bring up that point again. You don't know it all, but you have to figure it out that this industry requires a certain amount of flexibility, adaptability, resilience for everyone who hopes to accomplish anything in the end. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Jody Morrison, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. It was my total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.